0: Dear Prudence.
1: Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear 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 Prudy. Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to The Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, otherwise known as Daniel Mallory Ortberg, with me in the studio. This week is Gavia Baker-Whitelaw, who is the geek culture critic at The Daily Dot, covering fandom, science fiction, and comics. She also hosts the TV and movie podcast Overinvested. Gavia, hello. Welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you so much for joining us um, and for having one of the cooler names of any of my guests on the show. <laughs> um, it's so fun to have you on the show. I feel like we have revolved around one another's sort of various fields of expertise online before. It was great earlier this year when we were both recapping Star Trek um, for different websites. And I'm so glad that I don't have to do that anymore. <laughs> well, I love to recaps, so. That, I... I, I I think I have recapped two shows in my life. One was like when I was just getting started out um, and was like seven years ago and I was recapping the first season of The Vampire Diaries for free. And then was this year recapping Star Trek Discovery. And both times I was really bad at it.
0: I mean, I feel like you had a lot of good priorities, like really overanalyzing the wig situation. And I feel like in a lot of ways, that's preferable to getting really heavy in on the sci-fi detail with this kind of show.
1: I, I figured other people were going to be handling that a lot better. And I just could not stop asking questions about the wig, just like the wig choices and the wig budget. It was very and noticeable. It was. Uh, thank you. I, I, I do appreciate that it wasn't just me. Like, I don't think I was bringing too much of a wig intensity to the table. There was a wig issue with that series. They had so much money and they couldn't... Okay. Not important. <laughs> this is not a podcast about wigs. Um, if anyone has further questions about my opinions about wigs, specifically in the greater Star Trek universes, please feel free to email me and I will be happy to go into detail. The show had a real wig issue. That's all I want to say. Um, how how are you? How are you feeling at the prospect of delivering a lot of advice to strangers? I mean I'm I'm excited and
0: trepidatious. This is very much out with my usual zone of expertise, but I hope people kind of hear the, the sincerity in my tones. I don't want to screw it up for anyone. I've got kind of my list of questions here. And um looking forward to hopefully giving some adult advice like a real
1: grown-up. I I also look forward to that. And I think that the, the sincerity is coming through loud and clear. Um, so we'll go ahead and we will each take turns reading letters, which is what we do every week on this show. And um, I'll start with this first one, which I, I try not to run too many letters like this one because I do get a lot. Um, but it, it is, I think, representative of a sort of common concern that I think there are some helpful things that we can perhaps offer this anxious parent um, who is very, very worried about some things that are actually probably kind of far down the pike. Um, And the subject is trying on labels like outfits, which I just want to stop and say one sometimes hears that um, as if to say that's really worrying. What if somebody tried on labels like outfits? And, of course, it's possible for people to try on labels in a way that is perhaps um, frivolous or distracting or unnecessary. But for the most part, trying on outfits is fine. Trying on outfits is how you figure out what you'd like to wear, you know? Like... That's not a bad thing, always. So with that caveat, dear Prudence, my son is gender nonconforming, and we have done very well with that for a couple of years now. He's supported in school and at home and is consistently identified as a boy. Sometimes he uses language like a tom girl or in between a boy and a girl. However, a few days ago, he learned what the term transgender means and immediately insisted that he is transgender. This doesn't comport with his behavior or identity up to this point. He likes boyish clothes and girlish accessories and hairstyles. He's never disliked his body. I have flat out asked him before if he thinks he's a girl or would rather be a girl, and he has said no. What I'm saying is that he has never been consistent, insistent, or persistent about a transgender identity, and he's never seemed unhappy to be a boy. When I point that out to him, he digs in and says he just didn't feel comfortable telling me about this about himself before. I'm inclined to think that he's just being suggestible and trying this new idea out without really understanding deeply. I'm fortunate to live in a town with a pediatric gender clinic, but I kind of want to delay and see where this goes. He's still prepubescent, and I'm concerned about visiting the clinic and encouraging an idea he may otherwise move on from in a few weeks. Should I consult with an expert since I have the option or trust my instincts? Obviously, there's a lot of there here.
0: Yeah, a lot of a lot of, a lot of material. Um, I feel like um, in this instance trusting an expert sounds like a fairly good place to start. I mean, you're really lucky to live somewhere near um, a pediatric gender clinic. And I feel like the letter writer is maybe almost kind of in their mind thinking of this clinic as what if my child goes there and gets converted um, away from what I expected rather than going to a clinic and having a professional figure out what's actually going on, which could be helpful in this situation.
1: Yeah, I I would say number one, I think the the important thing to focus on here is that you love your child. Your child has been some version of gender nonconforming for a number of years. And nothing that has happened up until now has made you feel anxious about your child's, like, well-being or future, right? Like, all of that is really, really good. I think sometimes, um, especially when it comes to the possibility of uh, a child having a trans identity, there's kind of this panic uh, for cis parents of like, what's going to happen tomorrow? Um, and, you know, right now, given that your child is like prepubescent, mostly what's going to happen is, you know, you'll get to talk about options, possibilities, ways that people identify, choices that people make as a result of those identities. That's kind of it. No one's going to be... um You know, some of the bigger things that people get really anxious about, like, you know, no one is going to be, you know, slotting your kid up for surgery um, or, or trying to put your kid on hormones tomorrow. Like there's I think right now what you're afraid of, it sounds like is if my kid learns more about this, then they're going to want this. But for some reason, I believe that wanting this would only be the result of being highly suggestible. Which I'm a little confused by, because surely we get lots of suggestions about gender already, and I'm not quite sure why previously you didn't think of your child as suggestible, but now you do. Well, I have a theory as to why, and it's because you're afraid of having a trans child. And I think that might be where some of that fear is coming from, because it doesn't sound like before you had trouble believing your child um, when they told you things. Right. Like you say, oh, my son's never been consistent, insistent or persistent. But you, you do say that for years um, y- your son has not conformed to gender um, and has, uh, you know, uh, demonstrated overtly a number of times um, some sort of sense of boy doesn't feel right. That's not where I'm at. Um, so it's not like this is coming out of totally nowhere um, and I think it's a lot to ask of someone um, that they have, like, especially of a child, um, that they have arrived at this really, like, well-researched, um, super self Like, you, you say yourself, like, your, your child had never heard of the term transgender until a few days ago. That's, I, I, again, that does not mean go to the clinic tomorrow, um, set in motion a number of like pretty serious uh, interventions. That just means, you know, open your mind to the possibility that the reason that your child did not say I'm transgender before is because they didn't know that was a thing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's like, there's ways to kind of ease into that conversation, you know, have a chat about your, with your kid about kind of how you, if they want to have to change of behavior in like the household around the family, you know, maybe using new pronouns or that kind of thing, which is, you know, a step that's even before calling a medical professional, you know, and that's just could be a lot easier than kind of going so many steps further into the future, which I think, as Daniel said, is kind of what's happening right now.
1: It can be helpful to take kind of a step back and say, um, you know, what am I faced with right now? And right now, what you have is a child who has learned the word transgender um, and really likes that word and is using that word. Um, your child, it does not sound like, is asking to go to this clinic. You you just mentioned that you live in a town with a clinic, um, and you're not sure that you'd like to make an appointment this week. Um, you don't you don't have to. It does not sound like that's something that your kid is pushing for, um, and so it's okay um, if you would like to put that off for a little while. Um, And, and, you know, if if all your kid wants to do right now is talk about this term um, and learn more and find out more what this term might mean to them, then great, you can do that. That is reversible. That is something you can do with no, like, cost or time expenditure on your part. Um, That's very possible. That's available to you right now. Um, You can tell your child let's talk more about this. Um, I'm really sorry that you didn't feel comfortable telling me about this before. I want you to feel like you can talk to me about ideas or questions that you have without feeling like you're committing to anything. Or like, if I haven't heard you talk about it previously, you're going to have to prove it to me um, in order for me to pay attention. Um, I I think that would probably be the most important thing for you to do here. like, I, I personally, like, as somebody who is also transgender, one thing that I was really anxious about when I was contemplating coming out to the people in my life was the fear that people would say things to me like, you seemed fine before, or, like, such and such activity, or, or word, or whatever else seemed fine to you before. Why is that different now? Um, and feeling, like, this sense of, oh, my gosh, like, I did not sufficiently demonstrate, like closeted transness before in order to be able to come out now. And I'm not suggesting that, like, my coming out as an adult is the same thing as your child exploring identities right now. But, um, you know, I I think that the idea that all trans people have from just like a very early age, a remarkably consistent, um, overt sense of their gender identity is, is... not really helpful um and it's it's kind of a it's kind of an impossible standard to hold people to and also like a, a person could like boyish clothes and girlish accessories and have a gender identity as trans like you know clothes and identity aren't the same thing and I, I think you know that but i, I think it's because you're anxious, you don't want your kid to be trans because that's going to mean a lot of harder things or things that you didn't expect. So you're sort of hoping that that's not the ultimate outcome. You're sort of looking for reasons why that can't be the ultimate outcome. And I think you should not approach um, this with that perspective. gavi I have I have just been babbling on and on. Do you have anything else to throw out here? Uh, sorry, I've I been mean really... you've
0: given so much good advice. I think I think we've maybe got it
1: covered. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, right now all you got to do is listen to your kid keep an open mind. Chill and slow down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't put your kid in the position of, like, prove to me that you are interested in this. Um, just be available and listen. And if your kid continues to talk about this um, and wants to learn more, be there. Help. Go to the library. Um, find a P flag meeting. Um, find resources for kids who are questioning their gender identity. Um, and yeah, potentially, you know, in, in, a, in a while, consider making an appointment at the gender clinic. And again, if you go there, all you're doing is asking questions and talking about possibilities. You do not have to um, go there and commit to anything. Um, That's not what you're being asked with right now or asked to do right now.
0: And the people who work there are probably not going (laughs) to – they're not going to be like enthusiastically like, let's push you over and do this huge next step. You know, they're there to kind of have conversations with parents and kids. So –
1: yeah, yeah. I think sometimes cis parents sort of worry that like if if I let my kid explore this, if we go to a clinic, it, there's sort of this idea that like the people there work on commission. Like if you can get so many people to transition in a year, you get a bonus. Like it's Pretty Woman, and you're Julia Roberts, or they're Julia Roberts. I'm I'm getting my metaphors mixed up. It's been a while since I saw Pretty Woman, but that's like that's not how it works. Nobody's out here like trying to hawk hormone replacement therapy on the TV so the idea of like oh my suggestible child has been swept up in like the vast trans agenda is like you know reality test that idea like you know who who would be who would be standing to 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 benefit from that like I think generally speaking if somebody finds the idea of being trans really compelling it's it's not because they stand to gain something or that somebody else stands to gain something. It's, it's because it speaks to something pretty um, uh, deeply felt. And good luck. I'm glad that you've been there for your kid and I hope that you continue to do so. Um, and that whatever happens, regardless of what choices you and your children do and don't make, um, that you don't feel like it's your job to forestall or prevent anything. It's just your job to listen right now. Okay, well, we're just like on a parenting kick today because this next question is is also uh, about family issues. And I would love it if you would read it because I just talked so much. I'm sick of the sound of my own voice.
0: Okay, I will move on to the next one then. So um, the subject line is, am I a parent? Um, And the letter writer says, dear Prudence, my husband and I spent many years and around $75,000 trying to have a child. We were so excited when we finally got pregnant, but devastated when our child unexpectedly died hours after being born. We couldn't handle the heartache and were out of money, so we decided to move on as a childless couple. I work as a consultant where there are a lot of social events with customers and other co-workers. When the do you have kids question has come up, I've always said we had a a daughter who passed away and then quickly asked them another question or redirected the conversation. I do not want to dishonor my daughter by saying I do not have children. My co-worker recently started answering before me and says no she doesn't before I can respond. I confronted her and she says Um, that my answer makes people uncomfortable and that I should just say I don't have any kids. Is it appropriate to correct her when she answers for me or do I need to just say no? So this is like a very kind of sensitive topic and kind of my initial reaction is that your coworker, first of all, shouldn't shouldn't really be kind of making that decision for you and definitely shouldn't have made that decision about opening up about your child's death without consulting you first because it kind of sounds like this person interrupted you in front of other coworkers or maybe uh, clients rather than having a private
1: conversation um so i'm sorry you had to kind of deal with that conflict at work yeah because this is one of those things where like i think the coworker probably thinks that like she, she is i i don't know what her game was in the sense that like clearly you were going to notice that and that wasn't going to feel good to you um so yeah the the idea that she thought she was actually smoothing over anything um by jumping in and answering that question for you is um bad.
0: Yeah, I mean it kind of sounds like the coworker says you're making people uncomfortable, but you know, I think you've made her uncomfortable, which is not something to blame on you. Um it's just like a reaction she's had and it's really your choice whether to open up about this kind of thing. It doesn't sound like you're unloading a lot of personal information on strangers. It sounds like you're making a truthful statement during conversation that you are free to make if you want to do that. So,
1: yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really on the letter writer side here. I think, of course, there is a degree to which uh, conversations with customers and other coworkers or people in the industry, we all um, sort of, you know, hide some of what we're really thinking and saying for the benefit of, the business that we're doing. Um, So certainly there's plenty of personal information that we wouldn't necessarily give in the course of a conversation with a customer. Um, That does not extend so far that um, if you would normally acknowledge the fact that you had a child who died, that you should lie about it. Like, if that feels important to you. And again, it sounds like the way you've been communicating it is pretty like we had a daughter. She passed away. And then you move the conversation along. It's not as if you interrupt conversations to talk about your personal grief. Like, this, it's just an uncomfortable fact. Like, sometimes that happens. And I I believe that most people who hear that are capable of, of saying, I'm so sorry to hear that. Maybe internally feeling jarred because it's a jarring thing. But it's not something that you need to lie about um you know you're not like walking up to customers and introducing yourself and saying by the way like we should really think about like you're you it's just a sad thing that happened to you you are not attempting to um drag down conversations i mean in
0: terms of actually dealing with the situation with the co-worker um it does sound like you're probably gonna have to be the person who instigates that conversation with her in private and just kind of you know, try to point out that this isn't something you're trying to do. You know, you're not trying to use customers as therapy or anything like that. It does sound like you're just having this as like a simple kind of statement of fact and that, you know, this isn't, this hasn't like disrupted the workplace so far and she should allow you to make your own decisions,
1: you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that should be what you say. Like, You need to stop doing this. Um, I'm not going out of my way to insert this into conversations. But if people directly ask me if I have a child, um, I'm not going to lie. And you need to not do that for me. Um, I'm not doing anything inappropriate. We're able to move the conversation on. um, But it makes me uncomfortable when you tell people I'd never had a child when I did. And you need to stop. Like, that should be the end of that. Because also,
0: in the end, she is making you uncomfortable. So, you know. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's oh man, I'm just I'm very sorry. That's a very cold thing for her to be doing to you, and I I hope very much that she listens because you know if she doesn't, I, I I don't want to advise you to then correct her in the moment because then you guys are going to get into this one-upmanship of like, no, my coworker is lying. I have a child who died, and then then that's it's, that then would be it's a the very most uncomfortable conversation. Um, so she really needs to knock it off, and hopefully she. Hopefully she will, and if she doesn't, hopefully you have you know uh, recourse to to address this internally rather than to try to work it out in front of um, clients. But yeah, I'm I'm genuinely sorry that you have a coworker who is doing that to you. Don't do that, people. If you have a coworker who lost a child, um, let them decide whether and when they would like to acknowledge uh, their child. That just feels like common sense.
0: And generally, don't make broad strokes decisions on behalf of your coworkers' personal lives without consulting them first.
1: Yeah, that's. I mean, j- that she just decided the best way for her to handle this was to start interrupting and answering for you um, in a way that you were going to very obviously pick up on right away. Um, that was not good strategy on her part. And I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry that you guys lost your daughter. I'm really sorry. That's terrible. Um, and it, that's not one of those things that you need to. You know, never, ever, ever acknowledge just because you're at work. Like, that's a step too far, I think, to say, like, because you were at work, you cannot acknowledge, like, a death of a family member or the death of a child. Like, you know, there's, there's one, there's keeping your personal life, personal and your work life separate, but, but asking someone to do that is just a step too damn far. Yeah. Now I'm just thinking of every coworker I've ever had and every single resentment I've ever held against any of them. that's not helpful for for the task at hand i just wanted you to know no. that that was something that i'm thinking of right now i wonder what they're all doing all right let's go ahead and move on to our next letter uh the subject here is my illness makes me demean my coworkers which is a bold subject line dear prudence I have a long-term autoimmune illness, which causes a tremendous amount of cognitive difficulties. One of the most infuriating results is that I cannot remember common words for things under pressure. Sometimes I sputter, staring at people while I try to explain something, or worse, I find it impossible to recall their name. I work in a fast-paced catering environment where addressing one's coworkers is frequent and necessary. Most people know downtime me, when I'm thoughtful and well-spoken. But during a busy shift, I can devolve into, hey, hon, please grab me more fire thingies. I bristle if the wrong person uses diminutives with me, so I'm embarrassed that I often resort to Miss, Sir, Babe, Hun, Dude, Hey You, or Lady Passing the Canapes as ways of addressing people. Some of these people I've known for years, including my own husband, who I've sometimes stared at trying to remember his name, and some are new. I think all of them deserve more respect than that. We work with about 300 employees, 100 of whom I see on a regular basis. Some people know that I'm sick, and I've thought about telling people in downtime why I do this, but the reality is that most people who I'm not close with really don't want a rundown of my health issues. How can I resolve this? I feel rude and disrespectful. So far, I haven't found a good neutral way to let someone know that I'm speaking to them. All right, what's your take on this one?
0: I mean, my initial response, apart from the fact that it sounds like, um, apart from the issue of kind of feeling uncomfortable with kind of the like personal interactions you're having with, with your coworkers, overall you seem to be doing like a good job at your workplace. Um, but. Maybe I'm just kind of an internet-based millennial, but my immediate response to this was kind of, is there a way you can send a really simple email to these 300 co-workers? Um, because it's not, it's that you say that most people don't want to hear about your illness, which may or may not be true. It might just be you kind of thinking that people aren't interested. Um, but you don't have to go into any kind of detail. You know, you can send a one-sentence email explaining um to your coworkers, you know, I have this cognitive issue that means that I don't always remember names in this bar of the moment. And if the thing you're concerned about is demeaning people, you could maybe kind of choose not to use words like babe that people might find uncomfortable if they've kind of approached you about that and then kind of stick to, you know, sir and ma'am, which also I, I can understand would feel a bit stilted, but Maybe if you did find a way to kind of contact your coworkers in this more neutral, like less face-to-face environment, that could be kind of ironed out more simply. Yeah, I I I think
1: that too. I think it would actually be useful to your coworkers um to to know because it sounds like you're comfortable sharing it. It doesn't sound like you would rather keep that private. Obviously, if you did not want to share it, that would be different. But um, if it would make a difference, and you are occasionally worried that some of the people you who you don't see regularly think you think of them as babe or hun, um that would actually be really useful. So I think that it, that's great. And maybe check with your supervisor about, like, what would be the best way to do it. Um and, you know, in the meantime, I, I actually do think it's fine in downtime or at the beginning of a shift to just say really quickly, like, hey, guys, I have an issue uh, where I have like a, a cognitive issue that makes it difficult for me to remember names. Um, I, I, I do my best not to use diminutives. But if I occasionally um, point or try to get your attention without using your name, um, it, it's genuinely because I'm having a, a hard time remembering words at that moment. Um and that's it. That's a brief sentence or two, um, and I think it will go a long way to like people would really, really understand that. Whereas somebody who hears you say like "hun" or "sweetie" might be kind of jarred.
0: Yeah, I mean, it does sound like the situation could kind of lead to people misinterpreting. Because I know a lot of people are like, obviously, not going to be necessarily comfortable with using that kind of language in the workplace. But like Danny says, if you just have like a really simple kind of announcement before the beginning of a shift, or do the round robin email idea. Um, that could be a way to like smooth things over without having to get into any really personal details with your coworkers you don't see very often.
1: And frankly, it's not a rundown. Like you didn't even give us a rundown. Yeah. Like I don't have anything other than a very general sense of what your condition is. So kind of uh, not at all dissimilar, by the way, to the last letter. You Neither of you are going into unnecessary detail.
0: I mean, sometimes, you know, situations that internally you know you know as a person is a really complicated situation that you think about a lot and kind of get very anxious about to explain is actually really simple it's kind of the feelings that are complicated rather than the actual kind of the i guess the scientific explanation you can share with other people
1: yeah definitely great to share this and and you should not be too hard on yourself this is not something that you do on purpose um and you're doing your best to make sure that other people are aware of the context um and it's hard it's hard working in a kitchen working in catering you often do have to think of things really quickly and move swiftly and um, there are a lot of fire things yeah okay (laughs) yeah awesome all right we got it so oh man this next one i forgot about how rough this one is. Um, so I just want to begin by saying, I don't know how we're going to handle this one. And we might uh, just ultimately say this is really hard and difficult and we're not sure what the best way forward is.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like I have I have a viewpoint, but obviously this one mm-hmm. is such kind of an intense situation that there's so many variables involved that we don't know that that can make it yeah. like a lot harder to make a kind of a major decision like this. Um yeah. But shall I read out the letter? Please. Okay. Um So the subject line is how to be two-faced. Uh, Dear Prudence, my sister Tess is married to a very unpleasant man. He's abusive, as in has sent her to the hospital multiple times and she's left him twice, but she's gone back to him each time. The first time we, as in me, my brother, and our parents all argued with her and told her he was scum and she was better off without him. Of course, we then didn't see either of them for months. This time we've tried to be a bit more diplomatic, The thing is that over the summer, we'll see a lot more of them, and I don't know how to walk the tightrope. How nice do we have to be? If we're too nice, will Tess think that she couldn't depend on us if she leaves him again? Will he think that he can get away with more because he's pulled the wool over our eyes? If we're cool but polite, will he use our disapproval to keep her away from us again? How do you keep on the right side of an abuser while still being clear that you don't think he's in the right? All right. Yeah. What do you think? Well, um... I mean, this is just a really, really difficult situation for everyone to be involved here. And I'm sorry that you're kind of having to come to us for this advice. Hopefully, we can help in some way. Um, my kind of, after thinking about this for a while, the, what I was thinking was that the important thing is to prioritize your relationship with your sister. Um, so it may, well, it may kind of feel like you're surrendering or appeasing to her abuser, um, kind of to remain in contact with him and to act, I guess, superficially friendly. Abusers do often use this kind of situation to create a rift between family members, so that kind of isolates their victim from their support group. So if you want to keep Tess in your life, you have to find a way to keep your door open to support her if she decides to leave again. Because in quite a lot of kind of abusive relationships, the victim does often leave and then go back several times, which can obviously be incredibly stressful for everyone around them as well. So yeah. I mean, the the initial reaction is always just like, I want to cut this person out of my life and remove the abuser and make a public statement. But sometimes that means that someone like your sister no longer has people around her to support her.
1: Right. And just given that he has put her in the hospital more than once, this isn't just, uh, you know, not that I want to have like a scale of abuse, but this is very serious and very violent, right? Like her her life is in danger. Um, And we know that when someone is in an abusive relationship like this, oftentimes the most dangerous time is when they are attempting to leave. Um that's when the the likeliness of um uh, you know murder is is the highest. So it's very, you know, important to maintain some sort of contact with her if that's at all possible. um this is this is a a, a case where her life may depend on it. Um, and I can really understand if, you know, you're not going to be able to go to a friendly dinner, you know, just you and your partner and uh, her and her abusive husband. Like, I, you may need to have um, certain, you know, if you happen to see him somewhere and you know that, you know, you have to be um, at least on the surface civil, that's one thing. But it, you know, it's okay if you're like, look, I can't go out to a bunch of fun parties with him.
0: Yeah. I mean, I can't really imagine how anyone could manage to maintain that level of kind of pretending to be someone's friend. I'm not suggesting that you should kind of insinuate yourself as his direct family member, because that sounds like it would be emotionally impossible. But um. Right. If there is a way to kind of maintain a relationship with Tess, like within that relationship.
1: Yeah, I think to communicate, you will always be here for her, regardless of whether or not she leaves him. Um, that, you know, I think it would always be great if she has a way of getting in touch with you that's secure. Like, I don't know to what extent he monitors her email or texts or is checking her phone. Um, but if there's any way that you can kind of um, periodically set up some sort of checking in where you know he won't be around, um, that would be uh, ideal, um, and just to let her know uh, that you're you're. She always has you um, if she needs help leaving, or even
0: have you know financial
1: assistance that she can access easily. Right. I, I think your choice to be more diplomatic in the interest of keeping in contact with her is really good. But I understand that part of your fear is um, that it it will look like you're saying we think this behavior is okay, um, and so I think just really to stress without pressuring her to just say what he does to you is not okay. I love you and support you no matter what. If you ever want to leave, I'm here to help. Um and you can you can come to me with anything. Um and and then to just, you know, not so often that you're like pressuring her, but just to periodically remind her like I'm here. Um and to to whatever extent it's possible to try to see her you know, separately, like to get coffee um, or to have an individual call, um, you know, to see her in person every once in a while, just to check and see if she is okay. Like, physically, you know, um, I think would be a good thing. Um, Maybe check and find a therapist for yourself, um, because this is going to be a a stressful, possibly ongoing position for you to be in. Um, Yeah, that's that's a difficult tightrope, I think um, it's, it's, it's very hard to balance. Like, obviously part of you would want to just, you know, tell him off in front of the whole world. Um, and the other part of you would know that would endanger my sister and I want her to stay alive. And I'm so sorry.
0: Yeah. I mean, <laughs> this is like by far the hardest one we're going to be talking about today. And, um, it's not just like a decision you're going to have to make now. It's kind of an ongoing series of decisions. So I'm sorry you're having to go through that. And I think the idea of a personal therapist actually. Could be a good one.
1: Yep. Yeah. And so I think, like, even if you happen to be in an event when he is there, if you just find yourself feeling like, you know what, I can do this for about 15 minutes, and then I'm afraid I'm going to say something, um, give yourself a lot of permission to go take a walk um, or to, you know, fake an emergency or to just say, it was so great to see you, Tess. We got to run. Something came up um, that that is um, okay um, to do and is is better than um, causing a scene. Um, and i think you know i, I recommend this periodically but um, the national domestic hotline is not just for people directly experiencing abuse they also offer support and resources for friends and family members of people suffering from abuse so that's um, www.thehotline.org um, and the phone number uh, to call is 1-800-799-SAFE that's 7233 um, and so you can also you know, get more like specific to your state, um, resources and options, um, and just support that you might need. Cause that's, that's a hard, you know, your, your question, like, I don't know how to walk this tightrope. That is a tightrope. It's really, really hard to walk. Um, and I think the thing to prioritize is to make sure that your sister has access, um, to supportive people in her life, because if he has put her in the hospital multiple times, um, and she's left twice, but he—he's always convinced her to come back. Um, you know, it's—it's—it's it's, it's a sad reality that probably he will try to put her in the hospital again. Um, and I—I I, I wish her as much support um, as she can get, um, and and as less like as as little isolation as possible. Yeah, this one makes me really really sad, yeah. and I'm really sorry. Um, Please keep us updated just on how you're doing. Um, Let us know if you are able to find a therapist or get support from the um, National Abuse Hotline or just if you find anything that helps you as you try to find ways to help your sister. Okay, well, this next one is still distressing, but at least it's on a much smaller scale. It's about bugs. Um, And bugs are very upsetting, but um, at least... At least it's just bugs, right? I once, by the way, when I was living in a, a studio under an overpass in San Jose, um, found a roach in a dresser drawer of mine, and I just turned on all the lights in the house, and I left for two days. That was my strategy. I don't recommend it as a strategy. I mean, I did come back and the roach was gone, but um, my light bill was kind of a lot that, that month. Um and it was not the bravest moment I've ever had in well, my personal
0: life. Had the had the good old bed bugs, which are a classic favorite of our generation. Have you? Um, that was an intense battle. Oh, uh, what happened? Tell me everything. Oh well, you know the, the the wonders of the bed bug is that you don't so much notice the bed bug as the blood stains that it leaves behind. Um, you know, you wake up and you're like, why are there, why are there blood stains on the sheets? And it's because the bedbubs, you know, they, they oh gorge themselves God. and then you squish them and pop little water balloons of your own blood on the bed sheets. I personally didn't have this so bad, but my housemates did. Mm. And, um, you have to go through some pretty intensive chemical treatments to get rid of those little bastards. And, uh, you know, you have to, you can either kind of put like clay down in the ground, which, gets into their little joints and kills them or you can do what we did and hire an intimidating ex-military man to come and poison them intensely and then you can't sleep in your bedroom for days so that was my fun experience and it wasn't even like intense new york bed bugs this was like pathetic scottish bed bugs
1: well i just want you to know that i will not be sleeping tonight (laughs) you're welcome (laughs) i am deeply deeply distressed on your behalf and um I I kind of want to scratch all of my skin off now. Thanks. Cool. Glad to be of a service. <laughs> so I think you should read this next letter
0: because I just don't want to. Okay. Shall I continue with the bug question? Please do. Okay. So the subject line is my friend, the Roach Motel. Um, dear Prudence, my best friend recently moved into an apartment infested with cockroaches. She has a huge phobia of bugs in general, and roaches specifically, and is taking it about as, per- as poorly as you would expect. Pest treatment doesn't seem to be doing much, and she recently told me she found some in her car and is even more upset about that. She visited my house for dinner the other night, and when I was in the kitchen, I saw a roach on our floor. I immediately killed it and was on high alert all night long, though I think it was just one that crawled out of her bag and we haven't seen any more." I'm torn on whether to tell her about it. On one hand, I think that she should be aware that she could be spreading roaches. On the other hand, she already struggles with isolation and I feel like this would make her cut everyone off. I want her, I want to have her over or take her out. I think if she left her bag at home and just put her keys and wallet in her pockets, it would be fine, but I don't know how to say it. Help.
1: I hope that your best friend is able to get out of her lease and move. Yeah. I think that that is going to be ultimately the best uh, best option for her. I think
0: the practical solution here, rather than a communication problem, is help her find a new apartment.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think the purse thing was probably a one-off. Um, you know, sure, you can, you, you know, she already knows that she's got a roach problem. So I think that if you say to her, hey, check your purse for roaches, it's going to be gross and upsetting, but it's not going to be the thing that puts her over the edge and never leaves the house again. I think giving her options, to, like maybe, frankly, ask if she wants to spend the night. I mean, check the purse, of course, but like I, I would sure love to not sleep in my cockroach infested apartment. Um, and to whatever extent you are able, yeah, help her uh, look for, you know, like a tenants rights organization so she can find out if she can break her lease. Yeah if the landlord's not doing enough, I assume the landlord is not doing enough because the place is still um, infested.
0: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I, I feel like this isn't something that can really be helped by kind of therapeutic conversations with her. It's definitely just got to either remove the cockroaches or remove her from the cockroach location.
1: Yeah. And now I just feel like every time I put my hands in my pockets, I'm going to be afraid of touching a roach. And I regret choosing this letter ever. Um, Yeah. Tell her, of course. Let her know. uh, Try to keep your tone casual. Ask if she can check her purse first um, and then also offer her a place to crash for the night if that would be helpful. And definitely help her find another place to live. She's your best friend. Like this isn't just some person. She is your best friend and she is terrified because of all the roaches in her home. That is upsetting. Yep. That makes me want to not go to my home. Like, I don't even live in that same apartment that I once saw a roach in. I've never seen a roach in this home, and yet I kind of want to move. All right, let's go ahead, and I will read our last letter since I just put you through the actual ringer. Um, The subject line is uh, dreading revenge porn. Dear Prudence, a few years ago when I was around 22, I sent a few naked but unidentifiable pictures to my boyfriend via Facebook Messenger. In a warm-up shot, including my face, I experienced a nipple slip. This boyfriend is now an ex, and I'm really terrified of him releasing the pictures, as I intend to become a teacher. I've tried to contact Facebook about my fear, and have been largely ignored or referred elsewhere, only to be ignored again. Is there anything I can do? Asking the ex to delete them is not an option. And yes, I know how incredibly stupid my actions were. I only included that last line because I just want to say... I don't think you were incredibly stupid. No. I understand when people decide personally to adopt a no-nudes policy, and I think that that is fine. I don't think it is stupid of a person um, to trust the person that they are dating um, to look at a picture of them naked. I think it's actually pretty reasonable to hope and expect that the people we date, even if we break up, will not use images of our naked body against us.
0: Yeah. I mean, this isn't a situation that's your fault, and you didn't do something that was morally wrong or sh- or like could be shameful, you know?
1: Yeah, the, the, the fact that your ex-boyfriend has behaved in such a way that makes you think he would release pictures of you and one of your nipples in order to try to tank your professional career um, says a lot about his, you know, potential cruelty than it does about your stupidity. He, if he would do that, is a lousy guy. And for what it's worth, I think you should check out um, the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative. It's just www.cybercivilrights.org uh, backslash revenge porn laws. Um, because there are 38 states plus uh, the District of Columbia that now have revenge porn laws on the book, such that if your boyfriend, sorry, your ex-boyfriend ever were to release them, you would have legal resource recourse. Because you know, you shouldn't be able to do that to people. Like That's just uh, is good. We should have 12 more states with laws about that.
0: Yeah. I mean, th- this was one of the letters where I kind of wanted more information because while the letter writer um, is clearly really, really terrified about this situation, which is obviously kind of a nightmare, um, it's not mm-hmm. really clear whether this is something the boyfriend is threatened to do or if it's kind of part of a passion of behavior, um, which made me wonder if maybe it might be a good idea to kind of find Um, a therapist who kind of specializes in anxiety and kind of talk about this from an anxiety perspective, because this is clearly weighing on your mind a lot. Like it's kind of this dark cloud that's starting over this new kind of part of your career. And maybe if you kind of talk to someone about that, even if you can't necessarily deal with the material aspects about Facebook, that might allow you to get some perspective on, you know, how likely this actually is to happen, um, as well as trying to like deal with the practical aspects in real life.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so I would say, certainly, you know, continue pursuing this career path. Um, go ahead, keep trying to become a teacher. Yes. Um, you know, if there are one or two friends, um, that you kind of trust to share, like I'm worried about this, just so that you have somebody who can kind of be in your corner and and help emotionally support you. You know, let them know you're afraid. Um, for what it's worth, um, I I don't think. If you're worried about the boyfriend, I don't think contacting Facebook at this point is going to be especially useful. No. Um, You know, given that he has had them for years, if he still has them, they are no longer hosted on Facebook. He has them on his phone. So even if Facebook were to, you know, pull them, he would still have um, screenshots. So um, that's not very optimistic, but I guess at least you don't have to worry about Facebook getting on this because that's actually not the issue. He has separate copies at this point. Um, It would not do you any good to spend a lot of time and energy trying to get somebody at Facebook to do this for you. Um, uh, But yeah, I mean, if the worst thing out there is a picture you once sent a boyfriend with a picture of your face and a nipple, um, I really don't think that that would be the kind of thing that would um, torpedo your chances of becoming a teacher. Um, Again, I think that would be the kind of thing where hopefully he never does it. If he does you would not in any way look like a – he would come off looking terrible and you would not. Yeah. Um, And, you know, if if it was a number of years ago, if your career continues to move on, um, you know, you may look different enough that it's not even immediately recognizable as you and it would not – like, I don't know, if I were hiring somebody as a teacher and somebody – like some ex of theirs said, well, here's a picture of her and her nipple, I would not think, wow – I shouldn't hire this person as a teacher. I would think, wow, this guy is an asshole and a jerk. And uh, if if my state has revenge porn laws, I'm gonna, you know, see if see if I can't um, invoke some of them. So, and I feel like in
0: some regards, maybe like because teaching is kind of a field female dominated profession, you're more likely to have a female boss who theoretically could be more sympathetic to this situation.
1: Yeah, and I, I just think that's it's all I, – I do wish that we had more details because I don't know if this is something that he has threatened to do or if this is just something that is an anxiety of yours or if it feels like something he would do um, uh, or what. But, yeah, I, I, I do think um, there are there are protections in place for, for situations like yours, um, and you should certainly not let it prevent you from moving ahead with your chosen career path, I think – I think you will make a great teacher and your ex will make a terrible person. Yep, he's bad. Which is really sort of this, yeah, yeah, he's a, don't do that. If somebody is ever kind enough to send you pictures of their naked body, even if the relationship ends very, very badly, don't use those pictures against them, you know? That just feels like a sentence I shouldn't have to say, and yet here I am saying it, um... They, they were not handing you a weapon to be used uh, in case of future resentments. They were just showing you their naked body and uh, that's nothing to um, use against them.
0: And don't feel bad about being intimate with someone.
1: Yeah, I like, don't feel guilty that you wanted to show your boyfriend your nipple. That doesn't make you an idiot. Um, lots and lots and lots of people do that. It's fine if you decide not to do that in the future, but don't beat yourself up for being 22 and sending your boyfriend a picture of your nipple. That's well within the realm of sort of bog standard human... Pretty
0: common behavior, I hear. People do like to share their nipples. Yeah,
1: that's mostly why people have phones, is to send one another nudes, based on the letters that I get. Um, That's like 98% of why people have phones. And on that note, um, Gavia, we sort of did it. We, we sort of waded through a series of complex, thorny, uh, bug-filled issues. We did. And we now stand on the other side. How, how are you feeling? I mean, I hope I've helped people or helped you help people. <laughs> <laughs> have you have you learned anything about yourself? Do you feel differently about any of the problems that you're currently facing in your own life?
0: Um, well, I don't feel like I'm facing any problems that really uh, coincide with any of these at the moment. Um fortunately, I guess. Um but they were all That's very good. unique situations.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm certainly glad that you have dealt with your bed bugs. Is there anything that you would like advice on?
0: Oh my goodness. I don't think
1: so. (laughs) Great. Well, good. I'm glad that you're just so sorted. So everyone who listened today know that you were getting advice from somebody who does not need advice herself, um, which is a pretty good, pretty great. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me on. Okay. And one final note before we close the show. So I often get letters on this show or rather in the live chat, uh, about how to break up with someone or whether or not someone should break up with someone. And often the answer seems to be, yeah, it seems like you guys should break up. Um, It's advice that I get to give a lot. Uh, Today, I was able to give someone slightly different advice, which was, you have broken up and you should give yourself permission to break up a little bit more, which is kind of an exciting new kind of advice to get to get uh, to get to give rather. And I hope that I get to give more of it in the future. It was from a letter writer who had divorced uh, her husband because he'd come out as gay and it's been about a year and they're still having dinner together every night. She's still in love with him and devastated when he tries to talk about his dating life with her, which he does a lot, often in front of their kids. Um, and she was just kind of at a point where she felt like she was swallowing glass all the time. And I just want you all to know if you've already done the hard work of ending a marriage or ending a relationship, um, and you're trying to stay not just civil and polite for the sake of your children, but close um, to such an extent that you are repeatedly, you know, weeping or having big blowout fights in front of the kids, um, and you feel like you're swallowing glass when, you're, when your ex is like giddy and over the moon about their new partner, um, you already broke up. You get to break up more. I I think sometimes uh, a lot of us feel like we should all have this very, like, european attitude to like oh divorce that's in the past we all have long leisurely brunches along the Seine together with our children all of whom are best friends and have hyphenated last names and we laugh and talk about memories past and um that is an unreasonable standard to hold yourself to if you have already split from someone like the cat's out of the bag right your kids are already dealing with the reality of divorce there is a limit to how much um family togetherness you can force on yourself um, if that togetherness results in big blowout screaming fights and lots and lots of weeping um, in front of the kids. So not only do you have my permission to end relationships that are bad, not getting better, show no sign of willingness to try to make things better and, and are just done. Um, if you've already broken up and you're trying really, really hard to stay not just civil, but like kind of best friend status, and that's not working for you. You don't have to be best friends with your ex. You don't even have to be friends with your ex. You can be friendly and hand over the kids and see each other at graduations or big family events um, or make friendly conversation um, for a couple of minutes when you're picking up the kids or dropping them off at one another's homes. And that can be the extent of your interactions with one another. Do not... um, feel like you have to be the best possible divorced parents in the world. You can just be civil, and that's fine. So please give yourself the gift of not crying yourself to sleep every night. You're not doing yourself any favors. You're not doing your kids any favors. Um, And you'll feel better when you have dinner alone. It's better to eat dinner alone and not cry yourself to sleep, um, to heavily misquote the book of Proverbs. And that's all from me this week. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. Remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401 371 dear That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show.